Acts chapter 3. We'll return to our Sunday night series. Considering a church in action, what does that look like? We're currently studying Peter's response to the multitude who has now gathered to see this crippled beggar who has been healed. And he's now walking and leaping and praising God. And everybody knew who he was. They'd seen him there day after day. And now they've gathered, gathered to Solomon's porch to witness this miracle. Peter now is addressing the audience. We might say he's preaching. But this is what he says in verses 12 through 26. When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted, granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled." Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto your fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Amen and amen. So we've covered verses 12 through 18 over the last six weeks in this series. And I'm just going to give you the main thoughts from that as we begin tonight. We don't have time to recap it all. In verse 12, we saw that what we do is not about us. It's all about Christ. In verses 13 and 25, we saw that Christ is the covenant confirmer. In verses 13 and through 15, we considered how we're to be living witnesses of Christ's resurrection. People ought to see that miracle in us. In verse 16, we saw how when Christ heals, He heals us perfectly. In verses 17 through 18, we considered the dangers of ignorance. And then last time in verse 18, we saw what the remedy for our ignorance is, and that is getting into the Word of God. Read it, study it, meditate upon it, memorize the Word of God. There's no excuse for biblical ignorance. I know it's hot. It's hotter for me. Just say amen and pretend like you're listening. There is no excuse for biblical ignorance in the day in which we live. We are maybe the most educated generation ever. It was not long ago as we just heard about A.W. Tozer. And I believe even our founding pastor 
dropped out of school. That was very common in those days. We're not that far removed, but listen, we are a people that are educated. We can read, we can write. We even have technology where we can punch in a word and everywhere it's used in the Bible shows up. There is no excuse for our ignorance today except that we are apathetic or we're just lazy. For tonight, we need to pick back up in verse 19 before I re-preach that message. (laughs) Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In the previous verses, we found Peter laying out a clear indictment against his countrymen. They took Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the Christ, and they delivered Him up to Pilate. And Pilate was determined to let Him go. He found no fault in Him. They desired instead Barabbas, a murderer, a seditionist, to be released unto them. And in so doing, Peter here lays the blame for killing the Prince of Life at their feet. But God raised up Jesus from the dead, and the account of Jesus' resurrection was certainly well known throughout Jerusalem by this time. People talk, rumors circulating, the the local papers, amen, the Twitter. you got to say those things now just to get the friendly chuckle from the congregation. Social media was talking about His resurrection. (laughs) And... (laughs) whether people believed it or not is another story, but people were well aware that there were eyewitnesses running around saying, I've seen the resurrected Lord. And to further prove Jesus was alive, the miracle takes place to this crippled beggar. And now he's walking, leaping, praising God. And what that was, was a proof to them that Jesus was in fact alive. Because... Peter says over there in verse 16 that it was faith in His name. Listen, faith in a dead man's name is not going to heal anybody. Faith in a living Christ is what healed this man. And so it was further proof Jesus is alive. And Peter then tells him how he believes, you know, what you did, you, you probably did because you were ignorant. Who knew better than Peter to say that? He was pretty ignorant about some things. Amen. As were all the disciples. And so he says, you know, I, I, I just guess it's through ignorance you did this. But then he says in verse 18, you really had no excuse because it was recorded in the Bible. In the Old Testament Scriptures, it was there. The, the religious leaders had failed them in presenting the whole counsel of the Word of God when it came to the Messiah. They just wanted to focus on the good parts. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible says that he was going to suffer. And so... They didn't have a full teaching. The people, and bless their heart, they didn't have a Word of God like you and I have. We're very blessed. And so they didn't have that. And yet, Peter here is letting them know, look, it was in the Word of God. You should have known. And in essence, I want you to get this now, because in essence, what Peter has done in verses 12 through 18 is he's removed their ignorance. He has given them knowledge, and he removes their ignorance. And this is what a church in action does. We just, we just don't invite people to church. But we want to remove ignorance. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to take it to the point of saying, giving them knowledge, letting them know they are sinners, clearly giving them the truth of God's Word. And this is very important our day in our day because there isn't a general understanding of God in our country anymore. 
Many of you are old enough to remember that you used to could knock on a door and people generally understood there was a God in heaven who sent His Son to die for them. They may not know the full details and all that, but it was generally understood that that had taken place. I can attest to that from when we used to knock doors 20 years ago. Everybody kind of knows it and then start knocking doors now and it's, it's just almost unheard of. People often associate Adam and Eve with an adult store more than they do with the Word of God. And even if they've heard of Adam and Eve, you know what they do? They don't know anything about the fall of mankind. It is so foreign to people. And what I'm trying to tell you is everything spiritual seems to be hijacked today. Just look at the rainbow. The LGBTQ+, IA, whatever you want to throw in there. I'm not being ugly. I just don't know when it's going to end. That's why there's a plus. It's letting the world know. We're putting you on notice. We're going to add more as we see fit. And they've already hijacked the rainbow. Most people have never heard how God set the rainbow in the cloud for a token of a covenant between Him and the earth that He would never destroy the earth again by a flood. Why do you think they chose the rainbow? Well, some of you may may need to close your ears on this one. But Santa Claus now dominates Christmas. All many people ever see is a little baby in a manger with no concept of why he was born. Many people are more excited at the arrival of Santa Claus than they are the arrival of Christ. And old St. Nick's attributes so closely mirror Christ that many have said, why would I believe in a Christ that I've never seen now that I know the other isn't true? The Easter Bunny now dominates Resurrection Sunday. It's all about eggs and candy and baskets and pastels, which I participate in on the pastel part. Because people like me and Jeff make it look good. All the while, the knowledge of Christ is being pushed further aside. For much of the world, the Lord's day is no longer holy. Professional football games gain popularity on Sundays. NASCAR usually races on Sunday. Golf holds its tournaments, closes out its tournaments on Sundays. Sunday's just another day now. Now, who do you think is behind all this? I don't believe there was somebody smart enough in the LGBTQ movement to say we ought to choose a rainbow. But I believe Satan knows the Word of God. I don't believe there was anybody smart enough in the business world to say, you know what we ought to make this man do? We ought to make him know your thoughts even when you're sleeping. He ought to be able to see you no matter what. Satan's at work. Satan's behind all of this. He wants to corrupt all things holy and godly. Satan fell with his I will mentality. His pride. And the message by many so-called churches today only seems to be about how I will. I will be blessed. I will be prosperous. I will be successful. And God's will is crowded out along with the Word of God. Satan has successfully produced a very spiritually ignorant generation today. And so we have to work at removing that ignorance by giving the knowledge of God's Word to the ungodly. Listen to what God called the Apostle Paul to do in Acts 26.18. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And just like Paul, every child of God has been called to remove the ignorance held by those 
who are being bound by the power of Satan, we need to be able to turn them to God. Not that we save them, but that we are turning them to see Christ so that they can make a decision. We must clearly present the sinfulness of the sinner, the good news of the gospel, so that when all is said and done, there is no more ignorance, and they understand who they are and what their need is. And so now, Peter, having laid out this clear case against them, he does what all good preaching to the lost should do. He brings them to a decision point. As we consider being a church in action, we ultimately want to bring people to a decision point as the Holy Spirit leads. Understand my heart. I'm not talking about a forced conversion. I don't believe in picking fruit out of season. I don't think we even have to force them to say anything. But what I mean is what we see Peter doing here, and that is we make the path clear and we give them what they must do, and it's up to them. Notice again what Peter tells them after removing their ignorance. Repent ye therefore and be converted. Because they can no longer claim ignorance, they are now left with only two options. Accept or reject Christ. And that's our main reason for being upon this earth. To bring people to a decision point, to a knowledge, this is your choice. It's heaven or hell. Like we said this morning, you're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. You have a decision point. And that's what we're trying to bring people to by removing that ignorance. We want them to make a decision. With knowledge comes responsibility. We often make loophole statements like, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And that's true. And we do that because we know that once they know that we know, now we're without excuse. Now we have knowledge. They know we have the knowledge. Now we have a decision to make. Do I cross that private property line to go fish in Rapid Creek? It's kind of my problem. <clears throat> James 4.17 Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. What am I saying? With knowledge comes responsibility. John 15.22 Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken Unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Jesus is saying, I removed their ignorance, essentially. I've given them knowledge they know. Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? That means that Christ is the only sacrifice. And so once we receive knowledge, we have the responsibility to make a decision concerning Christ because there is no other option for salvation. That's what I believe Hebrews 10.26 is saying. I know a lot of people are trying to say you can lose your salvation. That's not what it's saying. With knowledge and the removal of ignorance comes the responsibility of a decision. And that's why our goal should be to remove ignorance by giving people knowledge and bringing them to that decision point. Now, I'm thankful if you invite them to church. Hallelujah. I'm thankful if you 
talk about how wonderful our song leader is. Listen, all that's fine, all that's good, but if we don't get to the place of, here's your real need. You don't necessarily need a better music program. You don't necessarily need a better this and that. What you need is a Savior. And we've got to bring them to that point. William Barclay wrote, To have seen the full light of the revelation of God is the greatest of privileges, but it is also the most terrible of responsibilities. Once we are enlightened, we have a decision to make. Luke, 20, uh, Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. And so when we're given much knowledge, we have a lot of responsibility. After Peter removes their ignorance, he lets them know that their knowledge requires them to make a decision. And the decision point that Peter brings them to is repentance. The repentance is the acknowledgement of the wrong they did in denying Jesus. They have to confess they were wrong of their opinions, their thinkings of the Messiah and that His blood was upon their hands, just as they requested, I might add. To repent literally means to think differently, to change your mind, metanoia. We, we think of metamorphosis, changing, and, and meta, change. It means to change your thinking, change your mind. And I know there's a lot of preachers out there, maybe I should just say some, they're making a big to-do about the word repentance and how we better be careful because if we don't preach it just right, the world's going to think we're telling them they've got to work for their salvation. The world doesn't even know. <laughs> okay, uh, this is just for preachers right here because uh, most of you could care less about this argument, but it just kind of gets under my skin. Um, in actuality, the Bible is clear that repentance and turning go hand in hand. <laughs> I think I covered this while we were in chapter 2, so I don't want to really beat this to death. But let me say, if a sinner turns to God, he will automatically begin to turn from sin. Because you can't stay in God's presence and be in sin. Or the other way around, I guess. And yes, I believe salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. I, I don't believe in works-based salvation. Did you know when, when 1 John 1, 19, or excuse me, 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that that word confess means to think like God does about our sin. We confess our sin. It's not just that we admit we sin. But what we are really doing is we are lining up with what God says sin is. And we are saying, we agree, Lord, that what you say is sin, that's sin just as you said. But see, many of us don't really want to confess. We just want to try to justify things. You know, I think it's okay if they do this, and I think it's okay if they do that. No, no, no. If we confess our sins, if we line up with God, if we confess our sins, and so we have to believe as God believes when it comes to our sin, and the whole of that verse says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, what John was saying there is we have to think differently. We have to confess. Therefore, sin cannot be forgiven until there is repentance or until our thinking begins to agree with what God thinks about our sin. 
Otherwise, what are you repenting? If you don't agree that sin is what God says it is, what is it you're getting saved from? This is why John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples all went forth preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because repentance, or repent, must precede forgiveness. We must turn to God, turn away from the devil. Many churches only invite people to become a member. Or you can be baptized into our our church. Because they've gotten away from an old-fashioned altar call. Where people can kneel before a holy God and repent the Bible way. First, get this, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves show unto us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how ye turned from, uh, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This whole idea that we don't have to turn because it has something to do with works. What are you doing? You need to turn to God because that's where salvation is. Look unto me all the ends of the earth and be ye saved. And so we have to turn from idols to God. This is absolutely clear here. Acts 26, verses 19 and 20. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says. That they should repent and turn to God. (laughs) And do the works meet for repentance. Like I said, that's probably just for those independent Baptist pastors that are snarly. But contrary to the debate that's going on, repentance and turning go together. I know I covered in chapter 2, there's a lot of verses that prove that in the Bible. But um, we we have to understand what Peter is saying here. Listen, repenting and turning, it's not just turning around. You can turn a leaf over, but it's still a leaf. You can be a sinner heading in this direction and turn around and head in that direction and still be a sinner. So I do agree there has to be a certain place you're turning, that's to God. Or else the whole point of turning is absolutely pointless. And so repentance and turning go together like thunder and lightning. (laughs) Peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) Peanut butter and anything. Sorry, Hudson. (sighs) Lord bless him. In fact, what you'll find here in verse 19, this this is good, is that repent... And be converted means to change your mind and turn. Converted literally means to turn about. To turn back. To turn around. To reverse. More fully we would say, as I've been saying, turn from the devil to God. In other words, and here's what I think we ultimately need to understand, is there ought to be a change when there's genuine repentance. I think, I think the longer I'm in the ministry, the, the older I get, the longer I'm in the faith, and the more I see people come and go. We dunk them, they're excited for a bit, and they're gone. The, the more I'm in this thing, the more I, I just want to scratch my head and go, did they even really get it? Because according to what the Bible says, there will be a change. Your life will begin to change. I know we struggle, and I know we're all diff- growing differently, Man, something ought to be working within you that's changing you. Amen. Anyway, I don't want to get hung up there. but um, And so, John the Baptist, he told that generation of vipers, bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. What was John saying? I see nothing in you that shows me you're in Christ. Why would I dunk you? But it's interesting today, we have somebody say we run them right back and we dunk them. 
I wonder if we shouldn't just pump the brakes for a little bit and say, let me put you on a three-month plan, see if you're still loving the Lord then. But, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> I wouldn't do that, but I want to. Jesus said in Luke 6, 43 and 44, For a good tree bringeth forth not... <laughs> let me try this again. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, neither of a bramble bush gather they grapes. Jesus said, you'll know them. So as we witness to people, you've seen them and I've seen them. Do you know Christ is your Savior? I sure do. Where do you go to church? I don't. I can worship God here. There's, there's no fruit me for Anyway, all right. Repent and be converted. Something ought to change in your life. Change your mind. If you change your mind, it ought to change your direction. And, and, and essentially here, I, 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 one thing I want to make here, it's a lot easier to change your mind than to change your direction. In fact, I would tell you this. If you want to make a lasting change in your life, you're not going to do it by just turning in your flesh. It's not going to happen. You have to die to your flesh. You might bring your flesh into subjection for a short period of time, but you're not going to keep it that way. You're eventually going to break. Because Jesus said the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. And so if you want to have a change that is lasting, it has to be by the power of God. So how do we do that? We live in the spirit. We walk in the spirit. Let's, let's get back on track here. Peter removes their ignorance. He gives them knowledge of the truth. He brings them to a decision point. Repent and be converted. Matthew Poole wrote, This is the true end, use, and application, both of the preceding miracle and sermon, to persuade unto repentance and conversion. And what he's saying there is, this is the reason why the miracle was performed. This is the reason why Peter's preaching, because God intends for people to be brought to a decision point of repentance and being converted. How does that apply to us? We have been born again by the power of God. A miracle has taken place in our life. We are living witnesses of the miracle of the resurrected Lord because a dead Christ isn't going to change you, but a living Christ will. And when Christ takes up residence within the believer, we start to change. And as we start to change, people begin to see there's something different. And that's when God has called us to preach the gospel because we have been changed. So in other words, all this that's taking place up to this point in Acts chapter 3 is to show that there is a living God and now I'm going to preach them to you. Somebody says, hey, how come you don't cuss? It's time for you to preach. Amen. Hey, how come you don't come out with us with the work folks and go drinking? It's time for you to preach. Why do you think it's bad I'm running around? It's time for you to preach. That's, that's what it's all intended to do. Why? A miracle has taken place in your life. You are no longer who you used to be. And that miracle that people see opens the door for us to be able to preach Christ. And what we find as we progress in this verse is that repentance not only affects our present direction, but I want you to notice that repentance affects our past. Peter said that your sins may be blotted out. 
Not only is he talking about their actions against Jesus, but he's talking about all their sins in their life. With repentance, not only do we receive forgiveness, but there is a removal of our sins. Whoop! That's where we all get concussions from hitting each other, taking laps. Hey man, I'm forgiven. (laughs) We've lost the wonder of it all. You need to get a hold of this idea of having your sins blotted out. This is so good. The phrase is taken from a practice of creditors in those days. When a creditor had a debtor, he recorded their debt on a table that was covered with wax. And once the debt was paid in full, they would smooth that wax back out and it completely removed or it blotted out any record of that debt ever being there. It was completely removed. (laughs) You couldn't look it up if you wanted to. Whoop! Let me say it again. You couldn't look it up if you wanted to. It was gone. And I want you to understand, God not only forgives, but He removes. And once He removes, He forgets. They're blotted out. There is no record. There's not a trace of our sin ever being there. It's as if we've never sinned to begin with. Your sin is completely removed through the blood of Christ. You couldn't look it up in God's book if you wanted to. If you wanted to. So why are you dwelling on sins that God has forgiven? Why are there so many who say, no, God couldn't use me? You don't know what I've done. Well, according to what the Bible says here, He blots out our sin. What are you talking about? Why are you so hung up on something that God isn't? You know, I feel like God wants me to do something in church, but I feel like all I can really do is clean toilets. I appreciate your humility, but God can do a lot with you. Well, I just feel like God wants me to do something. I just don't want to be out in front because, you know, I'm just not, I'm not perfect. Join the club. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. David prayed in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He understood. Lord, blot them out. Later in that psalm, he would pray, verses 9 and 10, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. I hope you can grasp how entirely God has removed our sins. This is important for you to get because so many are hung up on the past. Who can God use? He can use anyone He forgives because when He forgives, He removes all their sins. Consider this. 
Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. How many of their sins? All of them. What's so good about that? Well, if you'll connect that to Revelation 21.1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Let that sink in. God said, I will throw your sins into the sea. And when the new heaven and the new earth arrives, John the Revelator said, I saw no sea. Our sins are gone. They're gone. Gone, gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Do you believe that? Do you believe your sins are gone? Do you believe the song we sing? I remember the days when I was bent low with the burden of sin and strife. Then Jesus came in and rescued me and He gave me a brand new life. And now as I thank Him day after day for washing my sins away, it seems I can almost hear the voice of the blessed Savior say, What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. When my flesh becomes weak, it's then I can speak to the Master who's with me each day. Oh, Father, forgive me, hear my plea, and He washes my sin away. Each time that I bow to give reverence to Him for removing my guilt and shame, He cannot recall what I'm talking about, for His answer is always the same. What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Please don't lose the excitement of it all. We've been redeemed. We've been justified. Our sins are gone. Finally tonight, repentance affects our present direction. It affects our past. And we see in verse 19 that repentance also affects our future. It says, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's more here than I have time to get into tonight. We'll pick this up maybe next time because of how it may connect to the the following verses. But to those repentant sinners who are in Christ, I hope you're listening. Because I know where some of you are at tonight and you're not in a good spot. If you're a repentant sinner in Christ, this verse tells us He brings times of refreshing when we are in His presence. Refreshing means a recovery of breath. Jesus said, come unto Me and I will give you rest. Jesus is our strength in our weakness. He is our rest in our weariness. He's all we need. But we must dwell in His presence to experience a personal calm through the storms of life. Psalm 16.11, Thou will show me the path of life. In Thy presence is fullness of joy. At Thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I know I get on thin ice anytime I address this, but I'm going to address it nonetheless. There is something to me that is backwards about Christians in depression. 
I know somebody's going to come up to me and somebody you know is on medication. God bless you. I'm not against you. Do what your doctor tells you. But according to this verse, Christians will be refreshed. According to Psalm 16, Christians will have fullness of joy. I know. I know it's going to happen. I'm not trying to upset anybody. I'm just giving you Bible. When we are in fellowship with our Lord and in His presence, we can rest assured that we will continually experience His love, His mercy, His grace, His peace, His comfort, and His joy in this life. That's not to say we're going to walk around with plastic smiles on our face. It's not to say that we're not going to have hard times and deep valleys and rough waters. But God will give you peace through it. How do we get in the presence of the Lord? Psalm 95, 2, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. And make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. I've said before, I think all music is spiritual. Just a matter if it's good or bad. This is why I believe congregational singing, like we're still hanging on to, is so critical. This is why I don't want a band up here where y'all can just kind of stand there and go, that's cool, he can play three chords on a guitar. <laughs> I believe that's probably why Satan has convinced so many churches to abandon congregational singing. Because the Bible has a very big emphasis on singing. When done right, singing with thanksgiving to God singing with gladness in our heart to God, it can usher us into God's presence. Well, I'm just down in the doldrums. What song do you have? Nobody knows the trouble I've... Oh, no wonder you're in the doldrums. <laughs> singing. Brother Long, thank you for how you lead our music. Amen. I'm afraid we take for granted what we have here. Um, we are a dying breed. Not just in the King James, not just in some guy up here sweating in a suit. We ask you to turn in your hymn book and sing aloud. Why? It brings us into His presence. I don't know about you, but some of those songs tonight really brought me to where I needed to be to get up here. We also come into His presence through His Word. We get in the Bible until we know we're in His presence. He speaks to us through His Word. He gives us those times of refreshing. Why are so many people without these times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord? It's because they don't have a song in their heart and they're not in the Word of God. I was talking to a brother this morning and we were having a conversation about being in the Spirit. And we've so overcomplicated it. How do I walk in the Spirit? You sing songs and get in the Word of God. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. In Psalms, where's the Patch Club? They can rattle that stuff out. One last thought. The Strong's Concordance also says that the times of refreshing figuratively can mean revival. If we ever want to be a church body in action that experiences true revival, then we must want to be in the presence of the Lord. We have to want it. 
We have to want to be in the Lord's presence above all else. But sadly, and it pains me to say this, but our church isn't ready for this. We are largely a facade of God's blessing. People come because we have programs in place. Worldly entertainments are still more important than our church attendance, our ladies' meetings, and our men's prayers. That's a fact. Too many would rather find an excuse why they can't attend, why they can't sing unto the Lord, why they can't be in His Word. You know, it's interesting. One of our meetings comes around, you know, I'm just too tired. Next month, same meeting comes around, oh, we're going to go do this with our friends. So it really wasn't a matter of being tired. You just didn't like the program that was in place. Well, I just don't like how they do it. I just don't like that person that's going to be speaking. And we find excuses not to. I'm just burdened about this. I mean to tell you. It's like we're hesitant to just sell out for the Lord and be all in. I'm not saying there's not a time for vacations. Amen. Don't take this to the extreme. But you know who you are, and you know what I'm talking about. And it's sad. It's a shame. And I believe God is disappointed in us. And it breaks my heart as your pastor. On one hand, I try to sell you on the idea God sure is blessing here. And then on the other hand, I look and I realize nobody really cares. And I think we take what we have here for granted. How many preachers have we seen come through here and mention, don't take for granted what you have here? And they're talking from a Western perspective. This is very unique out here. I don't know why God blesses us the way He does. But I believe we are taking it for granted. He isn't blessing because we're on fire for Him. And I'm praying God will convict us about our apathy and bring us to the place of true repentance and conversion. I pray the day comes when this body of believers so desires God's presence above all else that the fire of God falls and the people can know we met with God. Why are we losing a generation of young people? It's not because our youth leader isn't hip enough. It's not because we don't have a band. It's not because I'm not in skinny jeans and a t-shirt. I don't know what happened there. I can pull it off. I tell you a side note, what's really sad is you can't hardly go and buy a suit now without it being. I said, do you have anything for guys like me? And she said, no. I took that as not a compliment. But listen, we're, we're, we're losing it because we're not seeing genuine revival. And in the meantime, I find myself asking the Lord, please don't be angry with us. Turn us, O God, of our salvation. Wilt Thou revive us again? That Thy people may rejoice in Thee.
Maybe God's brought you to a decision point tonight. I hope so. And if so, I pray you'll respond and begin to really love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Don't let this be your culture. Don't let this be your family tradition. Don't let this be some Baptist thing. Fall in love with God. I'm not an educated man. But I love the Lord. I don't have all the answers for you, but I love the Lord. And if we would just fall in love with God and understand that our sins have been blotted out for the great love wherewith He loved us, I believe maybe we would see something special. Something that's not artificial. But something that stands the test of time that when our children move out of our house, they're serving the Lord. Let's pray.